0: Say I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. Um, and I've got somebody else joining me as well, but we'll get into that just a second. First, let me, uh, again, let me tell everybody in case you didn't know, we are listener supported radio. And if you are listening to us on WPFW in Washington, DC, I would greatly appreciate that you support this fine station. Uh, and if you happen to be catching this on WBAI, I'm not sure if uh, if this one's broadcasting on WBAI this week or not, to be honest with you. But if you're listening on WBAI, please do call their pledge line. Uh, go on their website, uh, just, with, just as with uh, WPFW, and uh, support these radio stations. And support them specifically for giving me some airtime and for giving me an opportunity to bring conversations that you're probably not hearing from anybody else. And on that note, it is so good to bring somebody in who is having the same conversations that, that I'm having. And uh, I mentioned a little bit of this subject matter on my last show. Uh, and I promised you that I'd be bringing uh, uh, my friend, Peter DiRico, to the program to talk about some of his work. And specifically, um, uh, I, I've mentioned his book in the past, but his book is Federal Anti-Indian Law. Peter, the, the work that you've done in this book has really been, in in my estimation, some of the best work I've seen because you don't just talk about a specific subject like the doctrine of Christian discovery. You you talk about how it got employed, how it got deployed, I should say. Uh, and and I think right now one of the things that uh, that is really grabbing a lot of people's attention. And and look, I, as much as I'm a critic of the the film Killers of the Flower Moon, I'm glad the story is being told. I'm glad it's being put out there. I'm glad that uh, that people are are talking about it. Um, I, I think the the film could have uh, offered a little bit different perspective, but regardless, I think the story of the Osage, um, it wraps right up into your work. So first let me go, go ahead and, and formally introduce you. This is this is my friend, Peter DeRico. He is a uh, uh, law professor at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Uh, he has done great work um, in kind of explaining what the Doctrine of Christian Discovery is, uh, and he's been doing that for, for years, but his new book, which is Federal Anti-Indian Law, really, to me, is, is a, almost a must-read. And, and look, if you're a Native activist, if you're a lawyer representing Native people, if you don't know any of this information, then you're not serving your people very well. So let me go ahead and, uh, and again, <laughs> introduce my good friend Peter Rico to the
1: program. Hey John, thanks a lot for having this conversation with me. I've enjoyed our conversations over the years and I'm um, looking forward to what we dig into today. Well, you know,
0: look, there's no question that Killers of the Flower Moon is exposing American the American public, well actually the international public I should say, was pretty successful at the Cannes Film Festival to a piece of American history that that people are pretty ignorant of. And and part of it is willful ignorance. I'm going to I'm going to just flat out say it part of its willful willful ignorance but a big part of it is is just the idea that when americans look at injustices they don't look in the mirror very well and so (laughs) you know the thing is about killers of the flower moon when people watch the film they are probably going to be pretty appalled by much of what they see in terms of the overt racism that the Osage, and not just the Osage, but the Osage in particular, um, in in this film, have have experienced, and I guess part of it that really gets, I, I would imagine most people riled up is that fact that even though the Osage in the 1920s were essentially the the richest people per capita as a as a broad based population of people, the richest people uh, in the on the planet, and in spite of having the wealth. They were being treated as um, as inferiors. They were being treated as incompetent, and th- and that's literally what they were called uh, th- when they had to register to even get some of their oil money, because oil was discovered in Oklahoma in the Osage territory, and immediately the federal government said, "Well, we can't have these Indians managing their own money, because they just are are too ignorant to do so." And you know, part of after reading your book and and knowing the Osage story, and then of course with the film coming out, I just felt like we have to talk about the work that you did in terms of everything from authoritarian rule that the federal government, uh, you know, use, use in spite of their, their claim to rule of law. um, The whole trust relationship thing, the whole idea of regarding us as, as wards of the state and how that leads to the story of the, uh, of the Osage. So, I mean, put some of that in perspective if you if you would or if you could
1: okay. Um, great. you certainly touched on um, some live wires there. Uh, I, I think the a, a good starting point is to understand that when we're talking about the history of u s relations with the indigenous peoples here, we're not just talking about indigenous peoples and what happened to them and it's still happening, we're talking about the actual formation of a structure of government that persists this day that's a Form of domination. The federal government uh, uh, claims this overarching power over basically everybody, Uh, the states, the citizens. uh, It asserts itself as the dominant force in American uh, governmental and legal circles. But when you get down just to the situation of indigenous peoples, is where you see it laid bare. Everywhere else, the domination is is um, hidden behind. Uh, phrases about the Constitution or phrases about this statute or another statute. But when you get down to the relationship to indigenous peoples, from the outset, you see clear domination. You see the, uh, you touched on doctrine of Christian discovery. You see the Supreme Court of the United States in 1823 under Uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, who usually has such a high reputation, if you study John Marshall in history or political science or something of that sort, or even in a lot of literature that's been written by lawyers who represent Native peoples, you'll see, oh, this great judge. Well, this great judge wrote a decision in Johnson v. McIntosh that explicitly said that the U.S. is going to adopt the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, which the crown of Britain, the king of Britain, as well as France and so on and so forth in Spain, had used to claim ownership of the so-called new world. And he said that the U.S. is now in that same position, that it is claiming ownership of the continent. And it is in the next two cases, uh, Cherokee Nation v. Georgia and Worcester v. Georgia, all within the space of 12 years. He made it clear that from the viewpoint of the Supreme Court the federal government is dominant over states and native peoples and in particular is the owner of native lands so the conflicts that we see that played out in the ensuing decades including the conflict with Georgia and the conflict the so-called the uh, trail of tears the removal of the Cherokee nation the Choctaw nation and then ultimately removal of the Osage People from their lands, all of that was conducted under the umbrella that Marshall had created, saying the U.S. already owns this land. So the Osage, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, didn't matter. All the way across the continent, the U.S. said these people don't actually own their lands. Well, and I They're-
0: just, just only to yep. back up just a little bit, yep. part of the premise there is that the the doctrine of Christian discovery basically referred to lands known and unknown. So in other words, people known and unknown. So they didn't even have to know who existed or where this land was once they put a claim into the land. And I think the other thing that I, that, you know, I know Stephen Newcomb uh, is really good at pointing out is the fact that John Marshall literally in his, in his opinion, in Johnson v. McIntosh equated, discovery with conquest i mean and, and he, yeah. he actually talks about it being you know an, a, an extravagant pretension the fact that we're gonna we're gonna Thanks. pitch this out there and say that discovery is the same as uh, as conquest and in fact he even goes so far as to say and if we can pull it off for a long enough period of time and make some things happen under this premise then it becomes rule of law and nothing can change it i mean this is it's an absurd proposition when you think about how Marshall equated just the, the idea of having somebody's eyes laid upon you, because they happen to be representing these Christian nations, and we represent an inferior people, as in their, uh, as far as they're concerned.
1: Yes, and and I think uh, it's it's really important to be clear about that 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 from the outset, Mark not only did he create a structure of domination, but he understood. That it was basically a lie. He called it a pretension, yeah. and he understood that it really wasn't even rational. He said it may be reasonable, and he said he understood that it was not necessarily even had anything to do with the rest of what we think of as you know having to do with justice and so on. It had nothing to do with any of those concepts. It was pure out and out a claim about land and to take it one step further. This is where you referred earlier about the Osage as well as all the other native peoples being regarded as incompetent, et cetera. From the viewpoint of the decisions that Marshall made, and the unanimous decisions, except for the uh, Cherokee Nation one had two dissents, but the point I'm getting at here, all of them agreed with the idea that the native peoples, since they don't own their lands, they're not really nations with sovereignty. They're just inhabitants. And Justice Story, who was on the court at the same time as Marshall, he participated in these decisions, Joseph Story, another very famous figure. His book, The History of the Constitution, is still regarded as a major work in American history. And in that book, he summarized from his point of view as a judge on the court what that decision was about. And he said that what it means is that from the viewpoint of the colonizers, the people who lived on this continent were equivalent to wild beasts they simply were present they were on the land they lived on the land they hunted on the land and in that sense they were like beasts but they had no claim beyond that they and if they were in the way they were in uh, of the US they simply could be removed and i think this is where you see the very start of it and not very many years later Is when it was being applied to the Osage.
0: Well, and and I I I want to mention because look, when we get into talking about even the Osage or or any of us who were involved in some of these removal, uh, the removal from our homelands and that kind of stuff, there's also a a contradiction. So from a legal standpoint, they make these claims about Native people not having title to land and and not really being of you know of enough human stature to even own land, but at the same time, they were negotiating treaties with us. I mean, so right. so there's there's a, a contradiction, and I know a lot of the work that I've seen you, you and and Stephen and other people do, there isn't as much of an emphasis on that contradiction, and and I and for good reason. I think part of the reason is because they push that stuff off, and they still lay down. You still got Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 2005 citing the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, you know, in in a in a case against the Onidas. I mean, 2005. I mean, we're not talking about the, you know, the, the 19th no. century here. We're talking about right. fairly exactly. recently. So I think it's important to, to realize that when the Osage are forced to, to leave their lands, which are essentially what is now called Missouri and uh, and are pushed into Oklahoma and, with with the dollars that they are being given to, to do that, they they buy land essentially from the Cherokee, which <laughs> wasn't really Cherokee title land either, so the whole thing is just so absurdity on top of absurdity, and so they by then they are looked at as if, as having the legal title to the land. Essentially, I mean it's not necessarily original title, but there so there's there's contradiction even as the as you've got um, you know Marshall and others saying that we don't hold title to land. Where you also, you know, like the Canadago Treaty, for instance, you got the, you know, the, the representatives of George Washington saying, "We acknowledge that the land is yours, and we'll never claim the same." So there's, there's contradiction here, but yes, what I, what I but, say, but what I want to <laughs> say is what prevails is the very thing that you're talking about. What prevails yeah. all the time here is this constant drumbeat that we we simply don't have the legal right to claim title to our lands.
1: Yeah, I want to say uh, a couple things. One is yes, the contradiction. Uh, in my book, Federal Anti-Indian Law, I quote Justice Clarence Thomas. Of all people he, on the court, he's the one who's clearest about this the craziness of the situation in so-called federal Indian law. He says it's schizophrenic. The contradictions are so basic that it's schizophrenic. And I think that that's an accurate statement. Well, and, 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 I think and to that point, I mean,
0: a lot of what you talk about in your in your book is the fact that there is no constitutional basis for what the what the United States is doing in asserting this authoritarian rule. And I think that that's something that that has to be reiterated over and over again, that all of the native policies, you know, and all of the law that comes out of things like the plenary powers doctrine, which we'll talk about in just a second, is is made up and it's and it's fabricated on the lie that is the doctrine of Christian discovery. And it has no legal foundation in, in the. US Constitution, even as justices like Marshall and others will will somehow suggest that the founding fathers of the United States intended for us to be um, you know uh, intended Congress to have uh, ultimate authority over our lives
1: So they you're right there's this con- the Constitution is not the basis of this field of anti-Indian law and it is simply the assertion of power which ultimately, in 1902, it gets called plenary power, total power. And interestingly enough, in terms of doctrine of Christian discovery, plenary power in Latin is the same power that the popes uh, claim, plenitudo potestatis. okay, total power. Now, uh, the, so the key here is that since it's filled with contradictions throughout, top to bottom, uh, then there's always the question... Who's going to decide in the midst of those contradictions? The federal government claims the power to decide. And so this is the aspect that is, when I say this is really has nothing to do with law at all. It's simply an exercise of power. There is no structure here. Since the contradictions exist at every level, if you're the one making the decision and you say, well, I see a bunch of contradictions, I'm going to choose this road. And not that road. You have made the choice in the midst of the contradiction. But how did you get to the position of making that choice? There is no basis for you to stand on except your assertion that you're the one that makes the decision. So the federal government, and that was what was laid down in Cherokee Nation v. Georgia and Worcester v. Georgia, the U.S. made clear to the states, this Indian land is up for for grabs. The crown of England has claimed it. We're now claiming it. So you don't get to claim it. And you don't get to mess with it. Only we get to mess with it. And so when it gets to the Osage, just to keep using them as a the good example, when you say they had money that they could then do some purchasing from the Cherokee, that money came from the U.S. selling off the land that it was taking from them, all right? And and this is very clear in the records that you can read, including a case when the Osage challenged, in 1957, they challenged the Indian Claims Commission decision that said that there everything happened fair and equal and and honestly in that negotiations of that in that 1856 uh, or 65 treaty that finally pushed them all the way out of Kansas, what was called Kansas, and the court uh, uh, that they they appealed to after that cl- court of, after the uh, Claims Commission, the court said no, we're looking at this record. We see all kind of problems with the negotiations that went on here and then they went through the details including the fact that the chair that the Osage they were they were going to be paid quote unquote three hundred thousand dollars but the u.s made far more than three hundred thousand dollars off of the sale of their land so it's a it's a real um land speculation shell game that's going on from the very beginning Marshall going jumping back to the beginning Marshall and Washington and Jefferson and all the rest of these guys are all involved in land speculation. Well, and you're you all a, trying, to and you make rich. a good
0: point. You make a good point in your book that when it come, when, when it did come to the occasion when the United States did buy land from Native people, they set the low lowest lowball price. They said, "Well, it doesn't have any value because you know un- until we own it, it doesn't have value." So they they acquire almost through fraud and theft the land, and then they sell it at a premium. And and of course this also gets to the whole to the the land grant college issue where all of where yeah, thousands, yeah, yeah. That millions too. of acres are given to these yeah. universities for their endowments. And it's not just that they're given land to build a university on them. They're giving them land just to sell to to you know exactly. to, to enrich themselves. Exactly. Like the
1: railroads. The railroads were given land not just to build tracks on, but they were given more land that they could sell. And the the uh process is just repeated rinse and repeat over and over again and that case that i told you about osage uh, nation versus united states 1951 i thought i say 57 51, uh they have all the details of that they have the details where the treaty uh negotiation said we're going to get the best price we can for your land once you leave it and that's what we're going to get for you and the court goes through all the details said well wait a minute uh, what they ended up doing is selling for a dollar twenty-five an acre. With regardless, they didn't even do surveys about how much the land is worth. And then the court goes into all kind of details about let's see what the land might really have been worth. And so the court comes up with the conclusion. They said we're not going to call it fraud because that's that involves an intent that we're not even we don't have to get into. But we can say it's unconscionable. It's not fair, and they're going to reverse that court of claims decision. But now get this. The kicker comes in after they say that the osage are going to get more money than that three hundred thousand dollars there's not going to be any interest on it now why is there not going to be interest on this money which should have been paid and was owed is because technically the land was not taken because it wasn't really their land so we're all the way back to christian discovery again that catch 22 you were cheated And so we're going to give you a little more money, but we're not really treating this like it was, uh, you know, a white man doing this to another white man. Because There's not going to be interest here because it wasn't your land, so it wasn't taken. And if it wasn't taken, then the Constitution wasn't violated. And we're back to square one that you didn't have any right to this land. And whatever you got, even though you should have gotten a little bit more, it's still going to be up to the U.S. to decide what that's going to be. And, John, I want to say one more thing. Refer to another book a more recent book. Stephen Schwartzberg wrote a uh, conversation of, of genocide. These were He looked at the uh, Cherokee removal. Uh, what happened? How did that get debated in Congress? Because as you know, there was a very close vote in Congress. There were a lot of people in Congress who said the Cherokee have a right to be where they are. It's their land in reality, not that they're inhabitants. They disagreed with the notion that the U.S. already owned that land, and they also said that if you really want to talk about Christianity, you can't say that there's Christian discovery. These because these people are human beings; they're not they're not inferior. Well, the same kind of arguments happen with the Osage, and one of the one of the uh, representatives of the House of Representatives when they were debating about this treaty, he said, Well, th- we already made an Osage a treaty with the Osage, saying that the land that they're now we're now trying to push them off of." Was theirs forever, and another guy in con- says, "Yeah, but what forever means is until we want it." And then so then the first guy says, "Well, it, that's my point is that what we're doing now is a violation of any normal right, which if you're a Christian, you should be upholding." So the contradictions that you're talking about, it goes in and out of the debates in Congress, that what's happening in the court, what and happens on the,
0: they're aware of those contradictions, absolutely, exactly. yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. let me, let, let's move. I want to yeah. move to where uh, you know, one of the other quotes from from John Marshall is this analogy that he makes that uh, that Native people are like wards to the custodian, so to speak. And yeah. And mm. out of that is born this notion that there is some sort of trust responsibility or trust relationship yeah. between Native people and the federal government. So that gets born out of some of, again, Marshall's uh, legal dicta. And, but what what becomes clear, and you pointed out so well in your book, is that there's a whole body of trust law in the United States. And none of that applies to this notion that the federal government has a trust responsibility to the, uh, to, to native people. And yet it's one of the things that they cite
1: all the time. And it's one of the things that native peoples, Wrap themselves up in like, oh, the federal government has responsibility for it. They have a trust for us, but the simplest way to understand this, John, for somebody that doesn't really want to take time and dig into the legal technicalities, is just think about the kind of stereotypical example. You got a uh, somebody has a rich uncle, and the rich uncle says, "Okay, uh, you're only seven years old, so you're too. I'm not going to give you money, but I'm going to put this money." in the bank and they'll the bank will be the trustee for it they'll invest it they'll take care of it and when you turn 21 it's you you get the money it's yours because it's my gift to you and the bank is the trustee they'll make sure that this money doesn't get wasted and doesn't get you know thrown away and so that's the typical you have the person who has the money you have the person who's supposed to be the beneficiary and you have the trustee now in federal anti-Indian law, that doesn't exist because the the people that are supposed to be the beneficiary are the native people. And the person that supposedly has control over the property is the federal government. But guess who is supposed to be the watchdog? And the trustee is also the federal government. So you have the federal government watching over itself. That is what is the obvious vi- a departure from normal trust law. Normal trust law that is just inconceivable. You can't have the the person be play two, have two hats. Like I'm watching out for myself. I have my hat on. I'm I'm the trustee, and then I put the hat on like I'm the one that looks over what's in well, my and you, shoulder. You
0: made it clear that there are current Supreme Court justices or recent Supreme Court justices that have made that full acknowledgement that when we're talking about the trust responsibility, yes. we aren't talking about normal trust law. I mean, they
1: they could be more clear about it. Alito is is the guy who has been he laid it all out and I, that's you are you're right there's a long uh, analysis of the case that he dealt with that he where he wrote this up he said let's be clear about this the trust responsibility quote unquote is a US policy that is handled according to US interests well and that's he said that's it,
0: exactly the point because it, it, you you talked about earlier that if that a ward of a custodian there is a, they are their best interest is what's supposed to be considered here.
1: Yeah, exactly, and so and he's very clear about it. And he's not the only one, but it's just the one, he lays it out. He's he goes to more detail than others who've recognized it. But it has been recognized by in other cases that what's called trust doctrine in federal anti-Indian law is has nothing to do with normal trust law. Right. It's just another. They use the same name and and so people who don't get that they're they're mystified because they hear the word trust it's like oh trust me well that like sounds a, like a, like good a good virtue word. right we're not but we're not we're not
0: talking about trust as a virtue here we are talking about no. trust as a, again another example of domination
1: mechanism of control right. so you have and and that's what the the next piece so plenary power is that's clear in itself a claim of total power that's a claim of total power the claim, but, but, of, but again,
0: that claim comes from this notion that we are perpetual wards of the state because we yes, don't graduate yes. from this. That, and that's where the, this whole notion that Congress and, and they manipulate, you know, the Constitution to come up with this this sense that, you know, the founding fathers had had wanted Congress to have this this ultimate authority. But but that's all made up, too. But it's all born out it's of this notion thing. that that we are considered lesser than them.
1: There's nothing in the record of the Constitution that shows uh, that there was any discussion to have plenary power over Native peoples. What there was discussion about is that, as between the states and the federal government, it would be the federal government that would have com- power to re- to deal with. It said the, the clause that they use is the to regulate commerce with the, the Indian tribes. It doesn't say to regulate the Indian tribes. Right. Exactly. No claim exactly. To that. It just says regulate commerce with them. And so that commerce included land sales. And so it was clear that what was going on in the Constitution was a struggle between the federal powers and the state powers. And actually, the more that I've thought about this, you could study the whole history of U.S. history versus states, that whole state-federal thing, which is still very much a part of American politics, and you could study it through the lens of the Native peoples and the two competing power structures competing for who gets to dominate this land, who gets to claim to own it, because Georgia claimed that it had Christian discovery. They said, we got our charter from the King. And that's where Marshall said, your charter doesn't count. Only the federal government's charter counts.
0: uh, And the federal government doesn't really have a charter.
1: So here's where we get
0: to. We get to looking at how do you see a scenario like that exists and, and is put on display with, with this film, the, the Scorsese film and, and the David grand book killers of the flower moon. You see this notion that these wealthy native people on paper, anyway, <laughs> these wealthy native people are being treated in such an, inf- you know, with, with such overt racism and treated as inferiors to this, to the point where they literally have to, report themselves as being incompetent to their guardians that have been appointed through the federal government under this so-called trust responsibility and and I I don't think there's an act of congress necessarily here that that lays this out uh specifically but this whole notion of policy again this trust policy that uh, that exists so I I think when people watch the film they should understand that this is how the scenario was created. This is how, this is the foundation that, that breeds this overt racism, this theft and, and, and these murders. This is how this is created.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's an ongoing thing. And you know, if you add to it, you think about the generational intergenerational effects of this, um, then you see, it's, it's just a clear, uh, line a clear trajectory from the original actions to the circumstances today. Where there's dysfunction in so-called reservation life and so on, and and um, I guess it's in in some ways you can look at that and feel it's hopeless. Uh, I don't happen to feel it's hopeless. I think it can be challenged, but it's disappointing to see how rarely it is challenged. Most of well, the we're gonna time, be, I want to talk about that because you know part
0: of the thing it, is you, you look at this situation that that was put on display with this film, and and you see this this overt racism. You see these people being treated um, in such a way that they're being exploited. I mean, the film doesn't even address how much they were exploited by the oil companies. I mean, it really just addresses what the locals are doing to them because the federal government has created this notion that, that these are incompetent people and they should not be allowed to manage their own
1: funds. I haven't seen, I didn't see the film, but I, and I took your, I listened to your review very carefully and it confirmed what my suspicion was. The book is where I'm going to stick with it. But, but that, um, there's a sense that these people were inferior, and that that they couldn't regulate their own lives, basically. And so, why couldn't they regulate their own lives? Because they were inferior. And so, there's a certain, there's a lock there. And and I'm I'm thinking nowadays people don't you know nobody's going to say oh they're actually inferior as people, but they're the law is still putting them in this category. Well, and that's and, why, that's and why I so,
0: want to bring it forward because I mean. When you look at what the Osage experienced um, in, in this situation and would continue to experience essentially, and you know that part of the whole idea of, of casting them as inferior, inferior was so you almost had an obligation as a white man to take advantage of that. And to, and... In other
1: words, in the, what happens in the film more than in the book is that there's the hero. Who's the hero? The hero comes from the government. The hero comes from the white men. The hero comes from the FBI. Oh, we're going to solve this problem for these poor people that are being discriminated against and being taken advantage of. And so even that is packaged within the the narrative that these people are somehow not really able to penetrate through this and figure out like somebody's trying to kill us and, and we they certainly get, know
0: how much oh. the, the fbi has been heroes to native people over, over yeah,
1: the yeah. exactly like exactly and that's not you know i'm glad you brought that up because you think i mean leonard peltier is still in in prison right <laughs> there you go. and so what how is it that you could have this th- these is it's kind of like people's, where our minds often operate in little watertight compartments, like Orwell said, double think. You can think contradictory things. So you can look at at um, Leonard Peltier and that whole story, and you say, oh my God, the FBI has really been a problem here. And then somebody shows you a big blockbuster movie, or the FBI is the hero, and say, oh, look at that, The Good thing the FBI was there to help those poor Osage people. And those two pieces don't get together. There's more contradictions in your head. And you don't want to get them too close together because they will short circuit. And then you say, I don't know what to think anymore.
0: Well, and and this is kind of the reason I even wanted to have this conversation is because this notion that native people could be could be treated as incompetent to deal with their own businesses, to, you know, to to manage their own affairs is not something that ended in the 1920s. And and I can't help but look at the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act as another example of not only. Congress asserting its power over native people, regardless of whether we ask. It's claimed of it.
1: power. It's, <laughs> it's claimed, claimed, claimed of power, power, right.
0: And and regarding us as incompetent because they passed this law. Look, what happens is native people were doing gaming on, on territories. And most of it was, was like higher end, high stakes bingo and that kind of stuff. But there were places that were opening up slot parlors and that kind of stuff. And the federal government and the state governments were, were raising hell with native people, including back here in Seneca territory. And a case gets goes to the Supreme Court in in California out of California where the Cabazons were running a high stakes bingo hall and the and California is trying to stop them and it goes up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rules and I got to be careful here because I I have to make we're going to make a comparison to the McGirt ruling and the Cabazon ruling because what happens is you get a, the Supreme Court that says well there's no underlying federal statute that gives the California or the federal government control over native people. And it's almost like there's no underlying federal statute yet. So they make this ruling, which in oftentimes which really sounds familiar to what you explained about the McGirt decision, because yeah, it looks like they ruled in favor of the Cabazons, or it looked like they ruled in favor of, you know, in, in Oklahoma to native people. But in the end, what they really say is this, these things exist because we haven't taken it from them yet. And, yep. and that and, and that's what
1: Gorsuch basically says in his in his opinion, right? Right. And so they and the cabazon. I think it's really it's another one of these contradictions because the Supreme Court looks at that and says we don't see anything here that prevents them from doing this. They're completely able to do that. Well, California and the state said we're not going to let that cash go by without our getting our fingers into it. And so they get their federal representatives working. And guess what? The federal government says. Well, we're really concerned about the uh, possibility of, you know, mis- mishandling of funds and the criminal gangs coming in. To, so we have to get in here to make sure that that doesn't happen. Well, how we, and guess what? The way the IGRI, way Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was justified is this is going to improve reservation economies. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean the states getting their hand on some of the cash is going to improve the. Reservation? No, it's going to improve the state economy. That's for sure. Well, and that's, that's exactly right. Because
0: essentially, what what they say is that we're incompetent. We we were incompetent yeah, yeah. of being able to. You need to have fend, oversight. Or, you fend to... off, you know, uh, evil doers that might, you know, the organized crime or whatever else. We we would be incompetent to be able to do that or to manage it or to regulate it. So it's not just about creating a, an opportunity for the states to make money off this stuff. It's about giving the states control and power. I mean, there there are elements of of native gaming. That literally can't happen without the governor of, of a given state giving, uh, giving yeah. approvals. And, of course, they right. so they create this situation. And and look, you only have to look at Seneca territory and, and see how abusive a Democratic Party uh, governor, two of them, Cuomo and uh, and Kathy Hochul, in seizing half a billion dollars so that she could turn around and give it to the, the local billionaire who owns the football team in Buffalo. I mean, it's 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 so absurd. But. I don't, I don't think it's a stretch. I don't think that it's, it's hard to make the analysis or, or the, the analogy that what happens with IGRA and what, what, what happened with, with the Osage are, are, again, exact examples of this notion of not only plenary powers that Congress asserts and the federal government asserts, but also this notion that we are still to this day. I mean, IGRA is like over 30 years old. You mean to tell me we haven't graduated from this, from being regarded as too incompetent to run our own businesses yet? We still have to have the states. We still have to negotiate gaming compacts with the state because the federal government is forcing that upon us. I mean, it's a, it's an absurd proposition. But yet, that's yeah. exactly what exists today.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and just to uh, refer again to the lack of challenge of that, so often you find that. What's happening in the in litigation is that the lawyers on behalf of the native side come in and say, well, of course, we know that Congress has total power. Instead of challenging that and said Congress claims that, they come in, give up the main argument, and then try to tweak the edges of it. So they say, well, we could modify that little piece of it over here. We're going to reform it. It's kind of like as if you have in mind well, this is colonialism, but we're going to reform the colonialism. We're not going to end colonialism. We're just going to reform it a little bit.
0: Well, it's and, also this notion that 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 our, our bigger enemy is the state as opposed to the mm-hmm. federal government. And that if, or if we can convince ourselves that the federal government has our back, then we can use that federal authority. We'll acknowledge it, even if it has no foundation in law. We're going to acknowledge it to push back against the states. But when you look at a situation like IGRA, I agree, empowered the states. There's no question about uh, about what happened there, and I go back to even you talk. You and I talked about the ICWA case. I mean, the Indian Child Welfare Act did not take away the authority of the state government to 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 remove children from homes or place children in homes. It just set up some federal guardrails. It still didn't involve us in the process. Not really. It, it literally you, just said you, that the that there, the, under the, under federal law. There had to be a priority placed on on uh, uh, the placement of exactly. of children.
1: So this is like the, any other so-called consultation process that you say, oh, the law. So ICWA and other laws say, oh, you have to consult. It's like the Environmental Protection Act or National Historic. Whatever. You have to consult with the native people. They don't really get to decide anything. Consult means they get to tell you what they think. They get to say, here's where here's our position. Thank you very much for telling us your position. Then, if it gets goes to court, the court says, "Oh, they consulted. They had three meetings over there. They they fulfilled their duty. Check the they box. just didn't yep. follow. They didn't do what the native." So, Oak Flat with the uh, copper mining, the Apache Thacker Pass with the lithium mine, the Paiute and Western Shoshone Land. The, the these issues are being fought out around. Well, you didn't consult them enough. Well. After all, you could consult them up the wazoo, but if they don't have any power of decision, what, what? it's like a charade. What has happened is a charade. And Obama made this clear when the U.S. finally agreed to sign the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and it has in there that nothing can happen without free, prior, and informed consent of Indigenous peoples. Obama had the State Department issue a special signing statement when he signed it, saying, we want to be clear here that our interpretation of free, prior, informed consent means we ask what they think, but they don't have to agree with what we do.
0: Yeah, consent is, now, consultation is not what consent. What does
1: consent mean? Yeah. It, it's just, this is like where you see the schizophrenic. How, I thought the word consent means you had to agree to something. Do you consent to do that? Yes. No. That's it, should, a choice. it should mean a, that we
0: have veto power, right? It should absolutely mean yeah, that, that we, that's we what have real, the ultimate authority.
1: Right. That would be what real consent is, but instead, at the highest levels of the government, by this guy who's supposed to be a great hero president, Obama says, no, and and when you're talking about indigenous peoples, consent doesn't really mean consent. It means something different. Well, what is want I, I want to back,
0: back up just a little bit because you know, I want to get back to the point that you were making yeah. um about our inability or our unwillingness to challenge this stuff. I mean when i yeah. I, I, I think about how so many native territories, we're just praising the, the, um, the result out of the challenge uh, on the ICWA case. I mean, ICWA, yes, they, yeah. were, they fully relied on the federal government saying they have the ultimate authority over Native people. And, yeah. and we, we go back to that. And, and so I look at that, and it's the same thing with IGRA, I mean, uh, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. I see Native territories praising this law because it somehow gave us something. It didn't give us anything. It took it it took away. The Supreme Court didn't yeah. make native uh, gaming legal and and the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act didn't. Both of those legal actions infringed upon native rights. And now we find ourselves in a situation where we don't even have any recourse. I mean, and and if our only recourse is to is to somehow Petition the interior department and look i get it a native person is this is, is the secretary of the interior but you know what she is essentially for all intents and purposes recused herself from native gaming issues and how yeah. absurd is that Be- because she's native she can't offer any any, con- any constructive um opinions about what should happen and she knows gaming yeah. i mean she that she worked in that field when she was with La- laguna pueblo so i yeah. mean the, the whole idea is just so absurd that that our people are, will rely on on the, the the power of Congress to somehow have have our backs, and we've seen it in 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 many regards when it comes to the Interior Department specifically, because we look to them as if they are the instrument of the federal government that's supposed to provide that trust responsibility, and and of course it, it doesn't.
1: Right, exactly, and it's the same Interior Department that has the Bureau of Land Management that claims it has power over. Thacker Pass and so on and so forth. So, yeah, just more of these contradictions. And I say when I'm disappointed, in not calling them out, one really good example the Yakima Nation amicus brief in a case that happened just a few years, a couple of years before McGirt, uh, there was a challenge from the state of Washington over the use of the R- Washington highways, so called, by um, uh, a fuel company that was a Yakima owned, not Yakima Nation owned, but just a Yakima person owned. And Yakima, and so the Yakima Nation came in, even though they weren't a party of the case, they filed an amicus brief in which they said that our treaty protects this travel. Well, our and, 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 and just
0: just to be clear, the um, the individual Yakima fuel hauler was licensed under the Yakima Nation. So he wasn't just, yes, you know, yes. he wasn't, he, he had never no, no, ever exactly. stepped into that other yes. stuff. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was a Yakima Nation citizen registered business at the Yakima Nation. And so the, but the point I want to get at is that that brief started out with a major full on attack on the doctrine of Christian discovery, the claim of plenary power, the claim of the trust relationship, and it just tore it to ribbons. And then it said, so having got that out of the way, let's look at the treaty. And there was some nervousness on the part of the council before they filed that, because that's not done. You don't just challenge the federal government position outright. And so yeah, I said, I was had some conversations. I said, yeah, this is a good move. Well, as it turned out, the Yakima amicus brief was cited three times. Very unusual to have an amicus brief really even cited at all. But it meant that the judges, clerks had read it, the judges had read it, and they didn't go anywhere near the challenge to Christian discovery. But they also didn't go anywhere near Christian discovery, except the dissenters would have done that. But the majority said, we think the treaty solves this problem. In other words, they've given us a choice. If we go down that Christian discovery road, they are going to ambush us from all sides. Because well, they've and, already
0: unraveled if they do that.
1: And, it un- and so, so we're not going to touch that at all. And the treaty, that's, what they, that's the real relationship between the two governments anyway. That'll solve this problem, which of course is what the Yakima position was. We have a treaty, the treaty means something. Washington said, oh, that treaty is out of date, or it doesn't really mean that. And the U.S., get this, the U.S., the great trustee, the U.S. came in on the side of the state of Washington. Of course. The U.S. did not come in on the Yakima side. One of the things that, that we see all the time is
0: we as individuals, we're, we're put in a, in a uh, as individual Native people, we're put in a funny position that how much do we even rely on the treaties as a defense? Mm-hmm. Because we know no. how corrupt those things were in their origins anyway. Yes. and yes. And so what we find, and we see that's uh, true here in Haudenosaunee territory, Six Nations territory, is oftentimes when a judge says, are you are you making a treaty argument? The lawyers back away. They're afraid to make those arguments. And, yeah, I, yeah. and I think for some good reasons, but at the end of the day, then what value does it have to have language like that? To have language yeah. that says that a specific right is... Not only, not granted in the in the treaty, but protected in the treaty. What what good does any of that have if if there's never really an opportunity if you're to never, rely
1: on it? Exactly. Yeah. and in the Oak Flat, the uh, the oral argument in the Ninth Circuit on the Oak Flat, there was uh, uh, one of the judges kept asking him, "Well, don't you have a treaty argument here?" And the lawyers were saying, "Oh yeah, th- well we could do that too, but they wanted to argue environmental protection, historic, protection. I'm thinking, so what what were they waiting for? They had an invitation from a member of the bench. Let's dive into that and see if there's any relevance. Mm-hmm. No, no, we don't. We know, we don't don't know don't want to rock the boat here. So yeah, you're right. If what is the point of having this position? It's a kind of a feel good. We have a treaty. We're an independent nation. Well, if you're acting like you're an independent nation, yeah, great. But if you're not, then what's the point? Well, and, and great... I know. I'm still, look, I've litigated cases where your best argument is that this is a matter like when Massachusetts was trying to make Mashpee Wampanoag people pay for fishing licenses and I handled that case and we won that case but part of the argument we used was that Massachusetts doesn't have the power if anybody's going to take this right away it has, it's going to be the federal government that's where we stopped and we didn't since the feds weren't in it we didn't have to raise our challenge mm-hmm. to the feds claiming that they were going to do that and so I understand there's a tactical use of that you know, that notion that the feds can have your back. But at some point when it becomes completely obvious as it is in so many cases where the feds don't have your back, as I said, in, in the Yakima case, the U S was on the state side. Then what you you say, wait a minute, at some point it becomes too blatant. So we're going to call it out. Right. Right.
0: And, and I, and I get the, the idea and the premise of, of almost pitting those state authorities versus federal authorities. I get that. The problem, the problem is when we, find ourselves all in with this notion that the federal government that that we're acknowledging I, I think you can make that argument that the states don't have that power without making the the argument that the federal government does and I think yeah, that's that's a, that's a yep. maybe
1: a, a tightrope to walk but I think and this is where the Cherokee Nation were doing this in the very beginning with the Trail of Tears and Marshall does is not going to get in the way of this he's you know he's He's not going to deal with the fact that the Cherokee are standing on their own ground. He's, this is what's so devious and disingenuous about it. He gets away from it by saying they don't have a right to come to this court because they don't own their own land. So he's, start, he's going back to his Christian discovery claim of U.S. ownership to get rid of the argument that the Cherokee are coming in to defend their treaty rights.
0: I still think that we have to be really cautious because I see it, look, I, I see it here locally. I see it yeah. nationally. I see Native people being enamored by the, a governor who says kind things to them, or to a president who says kind things to them, or to a, a senator or a congressman that says kind things to them. And they're not taking into account the bigger picture. You know, we, we oftentimes, yeah. you know, one of the things that I really talk about is this idea of siloing Native issues. If you If you don't look at what's happening across other Native territories, if you don't look at what what's happening even across other peoples. I mean, one of the things that, you know, that I, when I actually talked to David Grant, the writer of Killers of the Flower Moon, I said, how did you write this whole book about the Osage murders and never even mention Tulsa? I mean, the Tulsa massacres, which was, you know, what, 40, 40, 50 miles down the road. I mean, how could you not put the context of that kind of, that level of racism in, in, into, into real context? And so as we look at these things, we, we oftentimes don't think about the historical context of what's happening at the same time some of these rulings are being made. You did a good job when you talked about the differences in the Board of Education or the um, yes. uh, uh, case. Yeah. And uh, why don't you, just with a few minutes left, talk about how hypocritical that very court was in terms of yeah. uh, the,
1: the yeah. Tietan case. Yeah, thanks for reminding me about that. So Tietan versus um, United States, Tietan is a Tlingit band. And uh, uh, the U.S. uh, Agriculture Department had contracted to have timber harvested to make pulp for newsprint and on Tlingit territory. And Tlingit said, well, you owe us money. You took our timber. And they went to court. And this is a court. This was happening, overlapping Brown versus Board of Education. So in 1954. The Supreme Court said, we can't have this doctrine of separate but equal. That's discrimination. That's racist. That's unacceptable, et cetera. And then 13 months later, this court, same Supreme Court said, wait a minute, the Tietan, they said, "The t- you don't get any money from the U.S. government because you don't own the timber. As a matter of fact, you don't even own your own land. And the court said, you exist here as inhabitants, but and you get to live there by the grace of the sovereign. We went all the way back to the very beginning of the federal anti-Indian law, and it was 1955. And w- one one year, basically, 13 months, one year apart from this great decision getting rid of racism as regards to Blacks, and in the same year saying, oh, well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, uh, Native peoples, Indian peoples, I mean, you're not really the same. I, you don't have these rights. You just exist here because we let you. So, it's mind-boggling to well, think and that, I, and I think that's exactly the culture has both of those.
0: And I think it's so important when people understand what many of those points of history that that we experienced, in the, including the Osage, and and again, bringing it forward to to Igra, you've got to put them in perspective to what's happening in the rest of the world, in the rest of the United States, yeah. and you realize that there there still remains. A level of racism that is unique to Native people, and and I and that's yeah. that's a really tough um, that that's a tough pill for many people to swallow. I, they can't they can't yeah. fully wrap their heads around the notion that look we can understand black and white racism, but we still can't really wrap our heads around this notion that Native people experience a unique form of racism. And I, I think that's yeah, so still I a,
1: say, incredible. John, I, I agree with that completely. And I want to say here's one of the examples where you have to be careful. People who think that they're being, they're understanding something, being critical. When I see the phrase BIPOC, you know, black indigenous people of color, that's a complete misunderstanding of the special position of indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples are not a minority group looking for equal treatment. They are an independent peoples whose land is being taken by the United States it's a completely different argument. Well, and the, argu- is- the
0: ar- argument is that we're not fighting for for citizenship rights. We are not exactly. fighting for constitutional rights. We are fighting to yeah. remain outside of that constitution. And that's exactly. something that exactly. uh, and too many of our own people and the and the lawyers that are representing our own people just are afraid to even even venture down that path.
1: Even if they get their heads around it, John, they're afraid of it. I agree, and I'm thinking some of them don't even have that. They think of it, it's like a civil rights argument. It's not civil rights. Civil rights is rights underneath the Constitution. Indigenous rights are outside the Constitution, and all these great scholars, all of them, including Supreme Court justices, have all agreed that this is a separate issue. And the, the danger when people try to collapse and say it's just another form of racism, just like racism against Blacks, it is racism, but it's not the same thing. And if that argument wins, if people are saying it's just same BIPOC, et cetera, the Supreme Court is ready to pounce on it, saying, oh, well, if it really is just a matter of racism, then it is like civil rights, and then there's absolutely no independent government. There's well, no sovereignty. It, that, gets, that gets almost yeah. back to
0: the to the ICWA challenge, right? Because that's what they were trying yeah. to do. They were trying to treat us as a specific race and reduce us to just a race of Americans. And uh, the exactly. and th- and and court didn't he, even address that issue.
1: No, and that, your phrase is a good one, to, to, like a race of Americans. So then, and so, and I have to acknowledge that there are a tremendous number of people, including in leadership positions, you know, like the uh, the, the national organization you know, that represents <coughs> tribal councils, etc., who are used to speaking about our country, our president. They're not talking about their own countries. They're talking about the U.S. So they're helping to blur the image, and it's a very dangerous game. The ice is very thin right now. There are people who have been trying to challenge independent status of Native peoples by saying, no, there's, they're just like another minority. And if you go down that road without seeing it, you're helping to pull the rug out from under.
0: Peter, I am just about out of time. It's again, great talking, um, Peter DiRico, author of Federal Anti-Indian Law: The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, a great read. It's so good to talk to you, and I Likewise, look forward to John. having Thanks. you join me again. This has been a yep. it's been a great hour. I appreciate it.
1: Certainly. Take care.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's resistance radio for this week. I want to thank you for, uh, for listening and uh, we'll see you next week. Yahweh.